this week, JC debtors opt for a 363 sale, Denbury files for Chapter 11, Judge Jones approve amended Neiman disclosure statement, including my Theresa settlement. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelting. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later, Credit Research Director Mark Fisher will give us a run-through on second quarter earnings. It's Sunday, August 2nd. The J.C. Penney debtors have opted for a Section 363 sale process, quote, on an expedited basis for a going concern transaction, Joshua Sussberg of Kirkland & Ellis informed the court at a hearing Wednesday. Sussberg said the debtors are in, quote, active negotiations with three bidders who have made standalone operating company bids and have also received a credit bid from their first lien and dip lenders for the OPCO PropCo restructuring proposed in the RSA. Sussberg said the debtors must move, quote, incredibly fast to a Section 363 asset sale track. The debtors would seek to close on an approved sale this fall, he said. Ultimately, sales could entail one or, quote, maybe multiple OPCO participants, he noted. Specifically refuting a New York Post story regarding the sale process as, quote, heavily inaccurate, Sussberg said that the speculation that one bidder would seek to combine JCPenney with another department store brand is, quote, completely untrue. Each of the confidential third-party bids contemplates operating JCPenney under its own brand and intellectual property, quote, as is, where is, he said. He also batted aside rumors regarding the possibility of a liquidation. The debtors also provided a business update indicating that cash and short-term investments of approximately $1 billion for the week ending July 18 was about $400 million ahead of budget, driven primarily by better-than-expected reopening sales and cost reduction efforts related to landlords, vendors, and employees. Plano, Texas-based ENP Denbury Resources and several affiliates filed for Chapter 11 Thursday evening in the Southern District of Texas with about $2.4 billion in debt, the lion's share in the form of Second Lien 2021 notes. The debtors are pursuing a prepackaged plan pursuant to a restructuring support agreement, which, according to the disclosure statement, is supported by holders of 100% of loans outstanding under the secured revolver, which is approximately 67.2% of the second lien notes and 70.8% of convertible notes. Key terms of the plan include rolling the pre-petition RBL into a post-petition revolver and, upon emergence, into a new fully committed reserve-based revolving exit facility with initial availability of up to $615 million, secondly note holders receiving 95% of reorganized equity, and convertible note holders receiving 5% of reorganized equity and warrants for an additional 5% of equity. Subordinated note holders and equity holders will receive a share of another series of warrants for 3% of the reorganized equity, provided they vote to accept the plan. The $615 million dip-to-exit facility includes new money commitments and a roll-up of ex- existing pre-petition loans and $100 million of letter of credit capacity during the pendency of the Chapter 11 cases. The dip would mature on July 30, 2021 and pay interest based on LIBOR, subject to 1% floor plus 3 to 4% or using the alternate base rate as defined in the term sheet plus 2 to 3%. The dip lenders would also receive a stepped commitment fee. 
According to the First Day Declaration of CEO Chris Kendall, the company had avoided Chapter 11 bankruptcy during the 2015-16 downturn in oil prices by, quote, aggressively undertaking a, quote, variety of liability management efforts, including reducing debt, raising capital, optimizing operations, and reducing expenses. Although it ended 2019 with zero drawn on its revolver and entered 2020 with cash flow positive operations, the quote one-two punch in March of the COVID-19 pandemic and the Russia-OPEC price war caused prices to plummet. As a result, Kendall states, quote, Denbury came to the conclusion that incremental liquidity management strategies alone would not suffice and that a comprehensive balance sheet restructuring was required to enable the company to endure over the long term. A final disclosure state approval and plan confirmation hearing was set for September 2nd, and debtors' counsel said that if the plan is confirmed then, the debtors anticipate emerging from Chapter 11 on September 17th. At a hearing Thursday, Judge David Jones approved the Neiman Marcus debtors' amended disclosure statement. Prior to the hearing that same day, the debtors filed an amended plan and disclosure statement incorporating a global settlement of claims relating to the controversial My Teresa transfer. In a statement, Scott Vogel, the disinterested manager of Neiman Marcus Group Limited, said the proposed settlement was supported by the debtor's parent, the debtor's private equity sponsors, Ares and CPPIB, the term loan lenders, the secondly note holders, the thirdly note holders, and the official committee of unsecured creditors. At the outset of the hearing, Chad Husnick of Kirkland & Ellis told the court on behalf of the debtors, quote, It is my pleasure to announce to your honor that there is a deal. He outlined the previously disclosed key terms of the settlement. Hosnick emphasized the terms of the proposed sponsor contribution to the second and third lien lenders under the settlement are expected to be finalized by the end of the weekend. If a term sheet is not finalized by Monday, quote, the debtors would not launch the solicitation and would be prepared to come back to your honor to the extent necessary, he stated. Hosnick also highlighted the UCC's agreement to adjourn its motion to terminate exclusivity in light of the settlement. Counsel for the UCC noted that the committee supports the settlement but is still reviewing the amended plan documents. Judge Jones reserved time for a hearing on Monday, August 3rd at 1 p.m. Eastern. He indicated that on Monday, the UCC's counsel may make an oral motion to reconsider the DS approval ruling or to modify or amend the DS as necessary. Judge Jones noted that at Monday's hearing, debtors' counsel may also announce any further modifications to the plan documents agreed to with other case parties. Debtors' counsel indicated that Neiman would not, quote, launch solicitation until Monday following further discussions with other parties over the weekend. On the island of Puerto Rico, Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Wednesday issued a bench ruling after hearing argument on two motions to remand from the U.S. District Court to the Commonwealth Court of First Instance in San Juan, two lawsuits brought by National Public Finance Guarantee and MBIA and by AMBAC against eight major banks, which underwrote more than $66 billion of Puerto Rico bond issues. Judge Swain granted both motions pursuant to the Title III Court's authority to invoke its equitable powers to remand the actions. Judge Swain determined that although the court lacked federal question jurisdiction over the matters, it had related to jurisdiction to adjudicate the adversary proceedings. However, notwithstanding the court's finding that it has subject matter jurisdiction to adjudicate the disputes, it ultimately invoked its powers of equitable remand, sending the lawsuits back to the Commonwealth Court for adjudication, citing a number of reasons for this determination. Employee Retirement System bondholders filed a motion on Friday, July 24th, seeking leave to amend their first amended complaint in the takings clause litigation against the United States.
The amended complaint was filed in accordance with the director of U.S. Court of Federal Claims, Judge Richard Hurtling, who had paused the litigation awaiting the U.S. Supreme Court's rulings in the Aurelius cases, which upheld the means by which the PROMISA oversight board members are appointed as constitutional. The court vacated its stay in June, paving the way for the litigation to proceed. The Second Amendment com amended complaint modifies the ERS bondholders' arguments to account for the Supreme Court's finding that the oversight board members are not officers of the United States and were validly appointed. Additionally, the Second Amended complaint adds additional bondholders as plaintiffs. Other top stories last week were Elliott files $250 million claim against PG&E, alleges debtors failed to use best efforts to secure Elliott participation in backstop equity rights, Revlon offers to exchange 2021 notes into notes due February 2024 at 75% exchange ratio, would pay 5% consent fee in cash, preliminary Q2 adjusted EBITDA of $45.4 million, U.S. trustee appoints five-member UCC in California Resources Chapter 11 cases. And now, as always, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, good morning, folks. It is Reorg's man in Houston riding out some of them thunderstorms, which the Deep South is justifiably legendary. And please permit me to extend that rather overworked metaphor to next week, which is a veritable Harvey of billable hours for the legal community and spreadsheet manipulation for those whose expertise tends more to the mathematical. Please check out our weekly forward release bright and early every Monday morning. And on the subject of Monday, August the 3rd, Valeris PLC for and grace period expiration. There's also a hearing in Neiman Marcus, which my friend and colleague Connor alluded to in his bit, a dip amendment motion hearing in Pixis, along with earnings from Centennial Resources and Danaos. Tuesday, August 4th, second day hearing in Brew and E&P, Omnibus hearing in Zohar. Lynn Tilton, I note, has not updated her Twitter feed since September 2015, and the world's a poorer place for it. There's also a hearing in PG&E, the utility of that tribune of the people, Gavin Newsom, and earnings from Malincrote and Transdime, among others. Wednesday, August 5th, forbearance expiration in CBL. There's hearings in Sanchez, Altamesa, JCPenney, and Bumblebee. And there's earnings from Tava, Vistra, Weatherford, Cal Petroleum, Gulfport, Simerex, Comstock, and Parsley. So it looks like I'll be tied up that day. Thursday, August 6th, even more earnings. Indo, Bausch, once known as Valiant Pharmaceuticals, Party City, iHeart, Bristow, Pacific Drilling, APC, and Unity. And Friday, August 7th, Sanchez again. Couple hearings there and earnings from Clear Channel, Northern Oil and Gas, Summit Midstream, and a bunch more. And there's a whole bunch of earnings calls. And that is all from me. Thank you for listening. And now over to my friend and colleague, Mark Fisher, who's going to do a remembrance of earnings of this past week for y'all. Over to you, sir. Thanks, Jim. So talking about earnings, I wanted to start with an area where we've seen a lot of Chapter 11 filings and expect more to come and that's offshore drilling in the energy space. Valaris, which just filed its 10Q for the second quarter and didn't hold a conference call, warned in the filing, quote, while there could be no assurances as to ultimate timing, we expect our restructuring is likely to be implemented imminently through cases under Chapter 11 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code and that our restructuring may result in cancellation of existing equity interests and little or no recovery to existing shareholders. Valaris in the quarter 
reported revenue fell 33% to $388.8 million, which Valera said was due to $87.8 million lost from fewer days in the contract across the fleet, the sale of assets, the termination of the Valeris DSA contract, and $19 million of lower leasing revenue from ARO drilling. Valeris generated approximately negative $29.4 million of adjusted EBITDA during the second quarter. Estimated free cash flow was negative $207.2 million, though that was actually an improvement from prior quarters. Valeris generated negative $241 million of free cash flow in the first quarter and negative $374.8 million in the second quarter of 2019. The company reported sequential declines in day rates for its floaters and jackups. Of course, um, on Friday, Noble Corp filed for bankruptcy in the Southern District of Texas with a restructuring support agreement that would eliminate over $3 billion of debt. The company said that after many months of exploring strategic options, the company concluded that a substantial deleveraging transaction implemented through a Chapter 11 filing provides the best outcome for Noble and its stakeholders. Prior to filing, Noble Corp reported mixed results in its July fleet status report, disclosing a semi-submersible termination, but then both certain jackups entering standby or stacked offset by certain rigs receiving new contracts. Transocean, staying in the uh, offshore space, reported sequential revenue growth, but that was entirely due to revenue recognized from a contract settlement. Otherwise, revenue was about flat sequentially, and for the third quarter, the company got it to about flat revenue, excluding the settlement. However, Transocean warned of six contracts rolling off in the third quarter, and of those six rigs, the company said it would stack five of them. CEO Jeremy Thigpen said that while contracting activity in the deep water space has been, quote, disappointing, Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, the recent recovering crude prices has encouraged some customers to revisit some shelved projects. He noted that the contract was recently awarded by an independent producer in the Gulf of Mexico. Contracts are being awarded in Brazil for starts in early 2021, with Equinor possibly awarding a four-year contract in the coming months. Regarding additional outstanding tenders that could be awarded in coming months, Transocean said it expects Mozambique to award a multi-year contract, Angola a one-year contract, and Australia a five-year contract for offshore. That would begin in 2021. Roddy McKenzie, uh, Senior Vice President of Marketing, said that Brazil is the one region that is showing a definite uptick this year. Petrobras is poised to to contract three to four rigs for a number of open tenders, Contracts with as many as 12 rigged years could start in 2021, he said. While rigs hot and ready in the region will have an advantage in these tenders, pricing may become, quote, more interesting at the end of 2021 and 2022, he asserted. The company was asked about the expected Chapter 11 filings in the industry and what management thought would do to the competitive environment. Thigpen responded, quote, it's interesting, and all I can do is look back at what we've seen recently and kind of walk through that and assume that will replicate itself as we go through the second wave. So if you think back to the first wave, you had companies like Pacific and Sea Drill and Ocean Rig and Vantage go through restructuring. Out of all four of those, only Ocean Rig came out with a clean balance sheet. The rest came out with still pretty considerable debt. And so that would be one piece of it. I don't expect these companies to come out completely clean. I think they're still going to have quite a bit of debt. It will be pushed to the right and certainly be reduced from what it is today. And I doubt that they're going to come out with a lot of cash. And as you well know, it takes a lot of cash to operate and maintain these assets and certainly a lot of cash to reactivate them. So I'm not sure that they're going to be in a much better position than we are. The other thing we saw was when these companies were going through the restructuring process, we increased our market share. And I can't tell you it was because our customers were definitely choosing the more financially stable, less distracted organization, but it sure showed up in the way that we won contracts because we were not the low bidder during that time.
So let's move to retail. We'll start where we began with offshore drillers, a company predicted an upcoming bankruptcy filing. Taylor Brands, the owner of the men's warehouse brand, disclosed in its 10Q filing that, based on its projections and analysis, the company, quote, will not remain in compliance with the fixed charge coverage ratio covenant under the ABL facility beginning in the fourth quarter of fiscal 2020. The company stated that due to cross-default provisions in its debt, a default under the ABL facility would, re would result in a default and could result in the acceleration of other debt. The company says that as of the date of the filing, it has determined it is not probable that it will make the approximate $6.1 million interest payment, although it may decide to make the interest payment prior to expiration of the grace period. The company states it has determined that, quote, there is substantial doubt about its ability to continue as a going concern. The company further states that, quote, although management's projections indicate noncompliance with the fixed charge coverage ratio beginning in the fourth quarter of fiscal 2020, it is likely that we will pursue a reorganization under applicable bankruptcy laws prior to the occurrence of such noncompliance or well in advance of such date, possibly as soon as during the third quarter of fiscal 2020. As we know, retailers report in the off month, so we haven't heard from many but did get releases from a few. On July 1st, Macy's reported results for the quarter ended May 4th. Obviously, that's somewhat old, but the commentary was more current. CEO Jeff Gannett disclosed that all but six Macy's brand stores have reopened following its COVID-19 closures. CFO Felicia Williams guided to a 6 to 7% sequential improvement in second quarter comparables with stores, quote, exiting the second quarter at approximately 35% down. Williams said management expects comps to culminate in the third and fourth quarter with the total company down in the low to mid-20s range. Williams said first quarter digital sales will down, were down low single digits, but are expected to increase in the high teens in the fall as customers continue to shift to online shopping as the pa pandemic continues. Macy's guide to about $1.5 billion in cost savings by 2022. Bed Bath & Beyond also highlighted potential cost savings. The company stated that it plans to close approximately 200 stores over the next two years under its real estate and fleet optimization strategies consisting mainly of Bed Bath & Beyond stores. Additionally, the company stated that it expects actions from its cost restructuring program, including planned store closures to generate future annualized savings of between $250 million and $350 million, excluding related one-time costs. So let's switch to steel companies now. U.S. Steel reported net sales of $2.091 billion for the second quarter, a 41% decrease year-over-year year from the second quarter of 2019, and a 23.9% sequential decrease from the, prior, from the first quarter. Company reported adjusted EBITDA was negative $264 million in the, third, in the second quarter, compared with positive $278 million in the same period a year earlier. The company burned approximately $393 million in free cash flow in the second quarter. However, management noted that $1.4 billion of liquidity was raised in the second quarter and that it ended the first half of the year with $2.7 billion in liquidity, including $2.3 billion in cash. So despite the huge cash burn, total liquidity is actually in line with the average of the last four fiscal years. CFO Christine Brevis noted $200 million of the ABL was repaid in the second quarter. She added that the company is building up liquidity so it can reinvest when a recovery occurs and management is comfortable with current levels of debt and liquidity. CEO David Burt said, quote, North American flat-rolled segment shipments meaningfully accelerate in the second half of June. We are encouraged by the accelerating pace of incoming orders across our steelmaking and sheet finishing facilities. While a portion of operating inefficiencies will continue to impact third quarter performance, we are confident that the second quarter was the trough for the year. 
Orders had increased 174% in the June-July period over the April-May period for the flat-rolled segment, with a rebound clearly underway in automotive, appliance, construction, and packaging markets, according to management. Cleveland Cliffs also highlighted a recovery in automotive as needed to drive results going forward. Cliffs reported negative $82 million of EBITDA in the second quarter. However, CEO Lorenco Goncavis said nearly all the facilities that were idle during the second quarter have resumed normal production operations. And with demand accelerating, quote, faster and more consistently than originally expected, the company posted positive EBITDA during the month of June, way ahead of the initial forecast, he said, made earlier in the second quarter. He, uh, the company was largely impacted by the weakened automotive sector, which is Cleveland Cliff's largest market, according to Concavus. He noted that customers in the automotive sector are back to more normal levels of activity and have resumed production at all facilities that were temporarily idled except for the North Shore Mine, and this, that was Cleveland Cliff's, which will be back online next week. CFO Keith Kachi said that the steel and manufacturing segment was significantly impaired by shipments of automotive carbon. 250,000 tons were shipped in the second quarter, down 65% from the prior year period. However, momentum picked up at the end of the second quarter, and 177,000 tons went out in June. He said the shipment rate accelerated in July and that he expects 210,000 tons shipped. So that's uh, my run-through of earnings for, um, uh, for this segment. And hope you enjoyed. And Connor, back to you. And thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all of our podcasts on the site media page, iTunes, or SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your family is healthy and safe.